Hello and welcome aboard another episode of the Gallant Says Podcast, available live only on Twitch, but also wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, SoundCloud. If you haven't already, follow, subscribe, like, rate, review, do whatever you feels needs to be done. I said feels needs. That doesn't work grammatically. We're going to move on anyway. On this April 6th of 2022, I wanted to start off by talking about our dads. In case you didn't tune into this morning's show on ESPN 97.5 and 92.5 or yesterday's or any of the shows last week where Vanessa Richardson, my co-host, was out or in Indianapolis doing it from her home, it was because her father wasn't in great shape and her father passed away. It really sucks. It really does. Um, I'm absolutely heartbroken for her. I'm really fortunate to still have both of my parents with me. She put together a post on Twitter, which I thought was really awesome, just talking about her dad as her best friend. And she told me stories about him a couple of times, what a fun person he was. And it really has rubbed off on her. I really enjoy working with her and, I'm hoping that she'll be back pretty soon. And, you know, dads are awesome. What a hot take to lead off this episode of the Gallant Says Podcast. Am I right? But they're great. You know, I'm not in this industry without my dad. That's for sure. Did your dad get you your job, Paul? No, I don't mean it like that. I just mean, considering I grew up in a family that wasn't that big into sports, they always let me follow them as hard as I possibly could. Maybe they didn't let me watch Nickelodeon. Maybe they didn't let me watch MTV. But anything sports-related, my parents, and specifically my dad, they gave me access to so many different things. Whether it was taking me to Red Sox games as a kid, Patriots games. We went to 50, 60 of them or so. Even when I was living in Florida with my mom, my parents split up in high school and I moved to Florida with my mom and my dad and my sister stayed up there. But he would fly me up just so I could go watch a Patriots game with him, including some of the best Patriot playoff games that they've ever played. Both games against the Colts in the playoffs. I mean, I'm so damn spoiled having had that. My stepdad, too. My stepdad took me to Super Bowl thirty nine between the Patriots and Eagles. A game that we joked that we went to because not my stepdad being an Eagles fan and as my uh, as some Philadelphia fans said on the way into the stadium, their words, not mine, his retard son with Philadelphia accents because I was wearing a Patriots jersey. It wasn't because of the Patriots or the Eagles. We went into that game because of my mom liking Paul McCartney, but still got to go to a Super Bowl because of a dad figure. And, you know, maybe my favorite one, that it involves my dad. My dad took me to a Celtics game when I was six. They were playing the Charlotte Hornets. The game ended up going into triple overtime. I think I fell asleep in the stands because I was a tired little boy. Had school the next day. But anyway, before we go into the arena, we're at this bar. There's this very large man in a leather jacket that's standing at the bar. And I know who he was because I had been watching a ton of film from like highlight tapes and some of these really old 30-minute documentaries that you were able to get sports-wise all over the place back in the day. None of them were great. 
But this one was of Larry Bird with the Boston Celtics. And Larry was just awesome. And the story, you know, being this guy from French Lick, Indiana, going to Indiana State, almost having an undefeated team with Indiana State, losing to Magic Johnson in the finals, going to the Boston Celtics, becoming an incredible player for the Boston Celtics, a guy that was just obsessed with winning. Well, he's at the bar. My dad sees him. And, I mean, Larry Bird was notoriously someone that you didn't approach. You never asked him for an autograph. But my dad didn't give a shit. My dad, who is someone who always has been, I think, very, very confident in himself. He's got that salesman blood in him. Went up to him, tapped on his shoulder, told him, look, I know you're at the bar here, but my son is a huge, huge fan. Larry Bird comes over with my dad, and he's got this big smile on my face. He says, hey, Paul, how are you doing? With a big Indiana accent. And he asks me, you going to scream and cheer at the game tonight? And I don't even remember what I said. I just remember I was starstruck. We took a picture together. I, I'm not even up to his waist. And I figure that's the last I'm going to see a Larry Bird. But my dad went even further, knew someone at the Boston Garden. They got the picture blown up, and they got Larry Bird to autograph it. And I still have it in my office right now. In fact, here it is. Right here. To Paul, best wishes, Larry Bird. Can't really see it. There we go. There you can get the whole camera in there. It was the coolest thing ever. I don't get that without my dad. I know a lot of us have awesome sports memories that we share with our dad, maybe a father figure or something like that. They're the best. So our thoughts are with Vanessa right now. Um, if you haven't already, at Sports Vanessa on Twitter, send her some nice words. She would really appreciate it, I think. And um, I, I hope she'll be back working with me pretty soon. A below Black Star says my condolences to her family and her family during this difficult time. And uh, I'm going to relay as many of the messages that I've been getting to her because, again, I, I think I think she deserves them. But he clearly was a great guy, raised a great woman, and that's what dads do. Anyway, I want to shift into something else, huh? Well... I've been watching this documentary on HBO. Check that. It's not a documentary. I've been watching this sports drama. And sports dramas usually aren't very good, right? How many sports movies have you watched and felt are extremely well done? They're usually a little too long. There's some side plot that features a significant other that maybe has a little bit... Too much runtime. Any sports movie that's based off of something that's taken place is generally going to be meh at best. The one exception I'd say to that is Friday Night Lights, the movie. I thought they did a great job with that. There is this shitty red car in my apartment complex, and it is, trust me, a piece of shit. And it's a forced door sedan. And I'm sorry I'm getting sidetracked right now. But I can hear this piece of shit parking. And I mean, my God, it sounds like a fucking tractor whenever it's driving around. I don't know if this person knows that there's something wrong with their car. I hope that they do. Anyway, <laughs> I think the belt's fucked. Could be me. Anyway, back to talking about sports movies that are based on truth. Remember the Titans. Hasn't really aged well, in my opinion. 
I feel like I go back and I watch it and I think I've seen a million movies that have been made just like it in the years since. Miracle. Pretty good, but there are moments where it drags. The hockey parts are awesome. It's hard to recreate something that actually took place because generally there's not a lot of drama that takes place. And usually you have to add a little of your own drama. Emily comments, a league of their own is a great sports movie that has aged well, though it's not about a specific game. That's true. And I also think when it's something that almost no one knows anything about, like women's baseball players back during world war two, if I'm not mistaken, it's, just so novel, of course people are going to like it. And how many movies also have been made about women playing sports? You know, a lot of us, I think, generally laugh when we think about having to watch ladies playing sports. I'll admit it. I mean, I don't watch them. But I do think that that movie stands out because it's something that, I mean, who's going to try to do a movie like that again? I guess the closest thing to it would be that wrestling movie, I forget what it's called, like Glitter or something like that, that was on Netflix, and it's not even a movie, it's a TV show. I forget what it's called off the top of my head, but that's a fair point by Emily. I I think for the most part, though, sports movies generally miss. I gotta say, though, uh, uh, K-Maze 10 says 42 is pretty good. I watched it recently. I like Chadwick Boseman. I don't know, man. You know, it's Jackie fucking Robinson we're talking about here. I, I feel like Jackie Robinson's movie could have been a little bit better than the, yep, there was racism going on. He faced some racists and he overcame the racists and it showed like how difficult it was for him off the field. But I, I don't know. I, I watched it and I felt like that's a C minus movie. Uh, it's, it's hard to recreate it. You're also trying to honor the people that are at the center of it, but you need to have some extra juice to it. Glow was the movie, says Emily. Thank you for that. I, or check that TV show. I haven't watched it yet. Um, but Winning Time on HBO is fucking awesome. It's really, really good. You got John C. Riley playing Jerry Buss. You've got two young actors. I'm not sure who they are, but one who really looks and seems to act like Michael, uh, my bleh, magic Johnson was acting back in the day. I'm slipping all over myself. What's going on with the old brain upstairs? Kareem Abdul-Jabbar as well. Adrian Brody's playing a young Pat Riley. You have Jason Siegel playing a Lakers coach, Paul Westfall, that I believe is about to take over. At least based off of the episode I just watched, episode five. There's a lot of dramatization taking place. There's a lot of liberties taken. But I really like it. You watch it and, you're, and you think to yourself, well, of course the Lakers are going to figure it out. They're going to figure out how to turn their product into something that's just so perfectly L.A. And you hear Jerry Buss talking about it. And they have this thing where there's a, there's a third wall or a fourth wall, whatever. Man, I'm, I'm off today. Where they break through it and... They essentially tell you what's going through their head. This happens throughout the movie. TV show. I keep on saying movie. It's not a, TV, it's not a movie. It's a TV show. They keep going through it, and they, they'll, t- they'll talk to you to the side, or they'll make looks to you to the side. And I, I like it. 
because they're winking that you know where this is going. But at this point in time, the characters, as they're in action, interacting with each other, they have no idea where this road leads. But there are things that have taken place, I guess, in the building of the Lakers from what they were in the late 70s to where they are today that I didn't know shit about. And that's, I think, where the controversy about winning time has arisen. It has to do with, like, how much of this is actually real and how much is fake? So for those who haven't watched, you might know Jerry Tarkanian, who was the head coach of the UNLV running gun rebels, which were, as far as college basketball goes, royalty for a long period of time, even if Tarkanian was paying people under the table. Went to the Final Four with the Running Rebels in 1977, his fourth year as a coach. But there was a point, I guess, where Jerry Buss met with Jerry Tarkanian and wanted to bring him to Los Angeles to be the head coach of the Lakers. And you see the meeting, and I thought to myself, wait a second, was Jerry Tarkanian the head coach of the Lakers for a little bit of time? And it seems like everything is going in that direction until, spoiler alert, Jerry Tarkanian's agent is found dead in the back of a car. The implication is that the Las Vegas mob saw that he might be leaving Vegas for Los Angeles and killed him because they leave a, a business card of Jerry Buss on his body in the trunk. That didn't actually happen in real life. But Tarkanian's agent did actually die. And... It was probably because he was skimming money, he had gambling debts, and the skimming money part was the bigger problem. I guess he hadn't been told to stop. The guy's name, in case you want to look it up for yourself, the agent of Jerry Tarkanian, is Vic Weiss. He's got this Rolls Royce. He's got a vanity license plate in the back seat that says Weiss Guy. And apparently Weiss's death did lead to Tarkanian not leaving Vegas for the Lakers, who were offering him like $700,000 in salary. Let's read this. He was so excited to coach Magic, wrote... Uh, who's Lois? I'm reading from an article right now. He had all these ideas about how to use him. Lois is Jerry Tarkanian's wife. They dined with Buss. I know this whole tragedy has been very hard on you. Take as much time as you need. The offer's on the table, and it's not going anywhere. You're our coach. But Weiss's murder had changed things. With the death came the news of the coaching transaction. The people of Las Vegas reached out. Please don't leave. We need you. You need us. You are Las Vegas. The Tarkanians had four children, none of whom wanted to depart. Maybe, just maybe, money wasn't everything. Maybe $700,000 wasn't giving up the job he loved most. I don't think Jerry ever got past Vic's death, said Lois. He just didn't get past it. When Tarkanian called Buss to tell him he had to remain, he decided to remain in Las Vegas. The new Lakers owner held no grudge. I understand some things just aren't meant to be. So that's the first person that you think is going to be the head coach of the Lakers. So then they introduced this other character. I had no idea who he was. I never heard of him before. And I'll be honest, I'm, I'm not the biggest basketball historian unless it's the Boston Celtics. But Jack McKinney, in the most recent episode... And I see this guy, and he's got all these great ideas, and he seems like a good coach. And I'm thinking, okay, well, why haven't I heard of him? I've heard of Paul Westfall, but I haven't heard of Jerry Tarkanian. So 
the Lakers get off to a really good start in the 1979-1980 season. But on November 8th, 1979, Jack McKinney goes out on a bike ride. It's Paul Westhead. Why, why I keep on saying Paul Westfall? Good God. This has been like, as far as mistakes made on today's episode of the show, there's been a lot. So he's meet, cycling to go meet Paul Westhead for a game of tennis. His bike locked gears. He was threw, thrown over the handlebars onto the road. He hit the concrete and suffered brain injuries and was replaced by Paul Westhead on an interim basis. That's nuts. So you would think that McKinney, just with the way that things were being built up, was going to be the head coach. And Jason Siegel, who's very unassuming in this show, Jason Siegel is going to be like just an assistant. Nope. Not if you knew anything about Lakers history, of course. But McKinney had a brain injury, and Westhead, who led the Lakers to the championship, spoiler alert, I guess, he was appointed head coach the next year. McKinney went to the Indiana Pacers afterwards. He was head coach. Uh, he was head coach of the year in 1981. But it's crazy. You see this scene happen. It's like he died. I remember watching the scene. I was like, wait a second. Is a second person involved with the Lakers coaching search going to die in this show? So I guess there was a lot more drama taking place with those Lakers than I knew anything about. I got to say, it's been an entertaining watch. And if you haven't checked it out already, I highly encourage you to do so. Um, I had a question for today about the Houston Astros. And for those who don't know, I am working at ESPN 97.5 and 92.5 in Houston now. So we're focusing more on Houston sports. One person got mad at me for asking a Houston-based question today. And I'm like, fuck off. It's not my fault. Not my fault I'm not in Seattle anymore. No. I mean, I definitely chose to come back to Texas, but there were no jobs to be had up there. I wanted to see if it could work. Two and a half years. We tried it. No one else was biting, so we move on. Anyway, don't hold it against me. I actually just found out today that due to this T-Mobile app called, what's it called? It's called T-Mobile Tuesdays. They offer you stuff on Tuesdays, and I found out today that T-Mobile Tuesdays, they offer you a free year of MLB.TV. So I will be watching Mariners games this year, and I won't even have to pay anything extra for it. But I'm focused on the Astros right now. If you're an Astros fan, you should be cocky. You should be swinging your dick around because guess what? You're the best team in baseball, right? It's not close over the last five years. You've been to five straight American League Championship Series. You've been to three World Series. You've won one of them. It's hard to be that consistent in a sport like this, especially when you're not the Yankees and you're not the Red Sox. And even if you are one of those two teams, generally you have to take a step back to go forward. So my question was, what about them has you most concerned heading into the season? And some of the responses have been pretty interesting. Because guess what? For the most part, and I know a lot of you guys are in Seattle, you guys have been saying the Seattle Mariners. It's crazy. I'm surprised by how confident Mariners fans are going into this year. And it makes me happy. I know that in the past, you probably shouldn't be, shouldn't be, Really, shouldn't be confident. But based off of what I saw last year, I understand it. Highgate tweeted at me, the Mariners should concern them this year. Adam David said that they're in the same division as the Mariners. Thomas says, the AL West's not going to be as easy. Seattle, kind of think about them. A lot of people saying Seattle. 
And I really feel like there is perhaps the making of a good rivalry between these two. There's never really been a natural division rival for the Astros, just given the fact that they left the National League for the American League outside of the Texas Rangers, but the Rangers have sucked for almost a decade now. Maybe that changes with all the money they spent this year, but after those two World Series that they made back in the, what, mid-2010s? Back since then, they haven't really been much of anything. Sure, they beat the Astros from time to time, but it hasn't really felt like a rivalry. I don't think the average Astros fan looks at the Rangers and says, yeah, you're on our level. But I think the Mariners actually might be able to do it. Julio Rodriguez, he got called up. I don't know if y'all saw the video of Julio Rodriguez being told that he was going to be a major league player and that his parents were going to come to the game. That was fucking awesome. Below Black Star. Here it is. See, the Astros fans are going to be cocky about it. I like it. I was too. I think that guy, Softy, that was working on our competitor, got pissed off at me once because I was condescending to Mariners fans. Like, oh, that's cute. You guys have 90 wins. Shut the fuck up. You're not doing shit with it. But then I started covering them and I changed my mind a little bit. But that seems to be, at least as far as the responses that came out of Seattle, the biggest response as far as biggest concerns for the Astros heading into this season. Mark said injuries. Injuries fair. They have been rather unlucky on that front, so maybe you could sell yourself on the idea that because Alex Bregman's missed so much time, Lance McCullers is hurt again. Obviously, Justin Verlander's missed the last couple of seasons. Jake Myers is starting the season uh, injured as well in center field. You could tell yourself, all right, well, maybe, maybe, just maybe, This is the year where they don't get hurt. But I don't know. It's it's a long 162-game season. And I think of Yuli Gurriel being 37. I think of Michael Brantley turning 35. I think of Jose Altuve uh, turning 32 this year. And how relatively healthy he's been over the course of his career. Carlos Correa is gone. So I guess that's a guy that you're not as concerned about from an injury perspective that's off your team. Because you don't have to think about, is he going to hurt his back again? Is he going to hurt his wrist again or something like that? But I do wonder, on that front, injuries are always something to be concerned about. Um, People are bringing up Carlos, not Carlos Pena, man. Maybe I need caffeine. I don't know what the hell's going on. Brain is just not working today. Jeremy Pena, not panning out. A lot of pressure on Jeremy Pena. But I don't think that pain is going to be the difference between whether or not the Astros win. He can field, right? It's just a matter of can he hit. I don't expect him to hit early on. Andrew Thompson said, honestly, I think losing Correa will have an impact. But if Jeremy Pena balls out, the Astros front office will look like a genius. You just have to hope this happens. I, I Again, don't expect it to. Let's just let him play defense at first. In a lineup that features Altuve and Bregman and Jordan Alvarez and Kyle Tucker and Michael Brantley and Yuli Gurriel, you're fine. You got six plus starters that are better than most starters across baseball. I mean, all of those guys were better than anyone that the Mariners had to offer last year. All of them. Chew <laughs> unit tweets, drop off from not having Brent Strom guide the pitching. Yeah, that's a fair one. The bullpen's the big one. I mean, they signed Ryan Presley to an extension today, but who else do they have? Is it Drew Stanek? Who's going to be throwing the lefties? 
You don't really have a great lefty. You have a right-hander who's pretty good against lefties, whose name is escaping me right now. But how are you going to do against lefties? I wonder on that front. Uh, Splitty says it'll cost me $64 in gas to go to a game. Are you driving from Austin, sir? That is a long drive. If it's going to cost you $64 in gas. Uh, someone asked me this question. And another person said, I miss you on 710. I appreciate that, Katsuki. Hey, Paul, just curious. For your time in Seattle, were you fainting hate for the Astros? I wouldn't blame you if that's the case, but I'm curious about it. No, I never, I never feigned hate. People got mad at me because I kept on defending cheating. I was like, oh, it's, it's happening across baseball. It's not just the Astros, guys. Come on. But, uh, yeah. That might have hurt me in the long run. What do you think? Anyway, let's shift into another topic. This, this amused me. So, when you look back at what took place at the Oscars, we're going to be talking about that for a while. And I apologize if I'm somebody that is going to continue that process. But, I mean, can you blame me? Can you blame me when we've got TV reports as over the top as this coming out about Will Smith? Now to that ABC News exclusive. The producer of the Oscars, Will Packer, speaking out for the first time about what happened after that infamous slap. And tonight, what comedian Chris Rock told an emotional crowd at his first performance since the incident. Here's ABC's Kana Whitworth. <laughs> Damn. Tonight, one of the producers of the Oscars revealing exclusively to ABC News exactly what happened behind the scenes moments after Will Smith slapped Chris Rock on stage for making a joke about his wife, Jada. Will Packer, who led the show's first all-black production team that night, speaking exclusively to TJ Holmes, saying... Pause. 37 seconds into the report on ABC. Exclusively is said three times. Look at this report we just put together. Exclusively. Generic producer of the Oscars. We got him. He's wearing a Kango cap. Exclusive. ABC News. Exclusive, the graphic reads on the bottom of the television. Look at that shit. Oh, you can't really see it. I guess my my uh, my little picture-in-picture box is there. Why is news focusing on this? Is this what people want? Well, I guess it is. You're watching me still, right, aren't you? Anyway, let's continue this report, which, by the way, in case you couldn't tell, is exclusive. The LAPD came to his office and spoke to Rock. They were saying, you know, this is battery was the word they used in that moment. They said, uh, we will go get him. We are prepared. We're prepared to get him right now. You can press charges. We can arrest him. You have, they were laying out the options. And as they were talking, Chris was, he was being very dismissive of those options. He was like, no, I'm, I'm, I'm fine. He was like, no, no, no. And even to the point where I said, I said, Rock, let him, let him finish. The other officer. All right, let's transition for a second. That's a lot of restraint by Chris Rock. And I still feel that at his first stand-up since the slap itself, that he should have gone harder at Will Smith. It's right afterwards. It's not going to hit the same if you wait and you wait. 
But when this comes out, that the police were going to go in and take Will Smith out. Not like a SWAT team, but they were just going to take him out. And this is how it went down. I got to say, props to Chris Rock. I'm much more patient man than me. Let's wrap up this report. Officers finished laying out what his options were. And, um, and they said, you know, would you like us to take any action? And he said, no. He said, no. Packer telling ABC News he did not speak to Will Smith directly at all the night of the Oscars. Exclusive. He did not speak to Will Smith at all, but this was exclusive. I guess Will Smith resigned from the Academy and he put out a statement and it's just very funny that someone resigns from the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. I betray the trust of the Academy directly responded to the Academy's disciplinary hearing notice, and I will fully accept any and all consequences for my conduct. My actions at the 94th Academy Awards presentation were shocking, painful, and inexcusable. The list of ones I have heard is long and includes Chris, his family, many of my dear friends and loved ones, and all those in attendance and global audiences at home. I betrayed the trust of the Academy. I deprived other nominees and winners of their opportunity to celebrate and be celebrated for their extraordinary work. I am heartbroken. I want to put the focus back on those who deserve attention for their achievements and allow the Academy to get back to the incredible work it does to support creativity and artistry and film. Does it? Does it really support creativity? I don't know about that. I mean, we're seeing movies be remade over and over again. And it does seem like generally the movies that win awards are the, peop- are the movies that people don't watch. Are, aren't you supposed to support the movies that, you know, make the most money? Aren't those actually the good movies? I don't know. That's just me. David Rubin, the president of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. Shut the fuck up. Oh, my God. What a stupid title. We have received and accepted Will Smith's immediate resignation from the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. We will continue to move forward with our disciplinary proceedings against Mr. Smith for violations of the Academy's standards of conduct in advance of our next scheduled board meeting on April 18th. I don't know why I gave him a British accent. What disciplinary proceedings are you going to do? You're not taking the trophy away. So shut the fuck up that you're going to go through some sort of disciplinary procedures. Like, what are you fucking talking about? Right? Come on. Shut up. Lame. Anyway, that's going to wrap up our uh, Oscars conversation. One last thing I wanted to hit before we hit the road. So I didn't get to touch on this. This happened about, I don't know, 10 days ago or so. But the NFL said that all teams must add a minority offensive coach or a woman to its offensive coaching staff. There must be a minority offensive assistant. It could be a female or a member of an ethnic or racial minority, according to the policy adopted by NFL owners during their annual meeting and will be paid from a league-wide fund. The coach must work closely with the head coach and the offensive staff with the goal of increasing minority participation in the pool of offensive coaches that eventually produces the most sought-after candidates for head coaching positions. So, in principle, good idea, right? I mean, kind of got to bend the arm of the NFL backwards to force any change in it. But is this really going to lead to more jobs? If you are hiring someone as an offensive assistant that must be an ethnic or racial minority, how many of those coaches who might be being hired just for the sake of hiring them and shutting people up are actually going to be brought in to a head coach's trust tree? You know, we talk about the NFL owners being so damn 
stuck in their own bubble. But coaches, in a way, are too. How often will you see a coach go to a new team and bring guys he's worked with before, as opposed to hiring people that he's never met before? You want people around you that you can trust because you don't want some sort of assistant coach that's trying new things, that's challenging your authority. So while I get what they're trying to do here, and I know that some people are going to go to the argument of, well, the most qualified people should get the job, but we all know that's not how it works in life. For the most part, it's who you know. Is putting somebody in this position legitimately going to make things change as far as more minority offensive coaches that become head coaches? I don't see it. And I mean, you got a guy in Eric Bieniemy. I have no idea what the hell it is with Eric Bieniemy that NFL teams are so hesitant to move him from offensive coordinator to head coach. Maybe it's something that took place in Boulder back in the day when he was at Colorado. I really can't say. But if it hasn't happened already for Eric Bieniemy, how is this going to make it happen for some other minority coach? I, I just don't see it changing anything. Right? Anyway. Beerman Greg says, what's up? Sup? So Pete Carroll at the NFL owners meetings, he called out NFL owners. He spoke for 10 minutes during a meeting of general managers and coaches last week, a day after the league announced said new addendum, I guess, to the Rooney rule that all 32 NFL teams must hire a minority offensive assistant coach for 2022. He told the group that such policies will never be enough until the owners themselves change. He just went off. He was saying, you can do anything, but until owners get to know these candidates before the actual interviews and understand they have to hire people who are different than them, it's not really going to change. Schefter, NFL's Adam Schefter, NFL, ESPN's Adam Schefter, reported that owners weren't happy when they learned of Carroll's comments afterward. Well, duh. I mean, they obviously don't want to be challenged on anything. I, I, I think Pete's right. And let's just look objectively at Pete Carroll and, this moment right now, he's he's right. The owners, I think, need to get out of their comfort zone and sit down and talk with not just potential coaching candidates, but they should get a feel for what their players are looking for. Not all of them, because again, there's 53, but the most important ones, they should talk to them and say, well, what is it that you like best in a coach? What is it that challenges you? The guys that they think they're going to stick around for a long period of time, especially franchise quarterbacks, they should have that conversation. And they should get to know better the guys who are on their coaching staff to see if maybe there's somebody that they are missing. Not all owners are like that. There are a lot of shitty owners across the NFL. But I do think Pete is right from that perspective. But what's funny is no good deed goes unpunished, especially on the internet. Deadspin, which is apparently still a website, had this headline about Pete Carroll. Pete Carroll called out owners for not hiring black coaches. He forgot to call out himself. The Seahawks coach is the worst kind of ally, one that sees the problem but won't do anything about it. Well, let's pause. I mean, he spoke up about it at the NFL owners' meetings. Speaking up about it is something. Sometimes it's grandstanding or patting yourself on the back or um, virtue signaling, as some call it. But other times it is a legitimate, hey, I'm raising this thought. Other people should think about it. So this article starts off with a Martin Luther King Jr. quote. And Martin Luther King Jr. 
Did I say Martin Luther Jr. King? Jesus Christ, Paul, you can't read anything today. When Dr. Martin Luther King wrote about his frustrations with the white moderate when he was sitting in that Birmingham jail, he was talking about Pete Carroll. Jesus, calm the fuck down. The Seattle Seahawks head coach fits the bill because shallow misunderstanding from people of goodwill is more frustrating than absolute misunderstanding from people of ill will. Lukewarm acceptance is much more bewildering than outright rejection. Carroll decided to be the pot that calls the kettle black when he took owners to task during a meeting for their failures when it comes to hiring black and minority coaches. Carroll feels like things won't change until the owners come to grip with what is the reality that there are coaches out there that can get it done that aren't like them. But as you continue to read this article, it goes out, goes in on Pete. Carroll has never had a black offensive coordinator on his staff. This is why his words are meaningless. Sure, he's had a black quarterback like Russell Wilson, and he's even had multiple black backups over the year. But he's never hired a black man or a person of color to run his offense, which is the side of the ball that owners love to hire for when it comes to filling head coach vacancies. It used to be the opposite, which is why so many black coaches tried to become head coaches by first being defensive coordinators, but that didn't crack the code either. Maybe that's why Carroll has had three defensive coordinators that were black during his tenure in Seattle. Wait a second. So just because they're not offensive minds, we're out on Pete Carroll? I mean, I feel like we're trying too hard here, and this is the internet in a nutshell. What Pete did maybe is inconsistent with some things in the past because this article goes on to say, well, he talks about giving Colin Kaepernick a chance and he's never given Colin Kaepernick a chance. Well, Colin Kaepernick might not be good anymore and it's been six fucking years. Maybe we can move on. Below Blackstar says Sean Desai is Indian. He worked with Norm Chow forever. I'm just wondering why we have to go all in on somebody when they do something that I think is a good step forward to bring up a point to owners that other NFL coaches maybe aren't as comfortable making. Pete Carroll's established he has had a very successful career. I think he's fine walking away. But he's a repeat offender, and he's the worst messenger for this message? Why is he? He's actually willing to say these things. What other NFL coach actually speaks up on things like this? I'm not saying he's a hero, and he's definitely been inconsistent with things over the past. And sure, you can point at Drew Locke and Jacob Eason and Geno Smith in the quarterback room as reasons as to why Pete Carroll maybe should give Colin Kaepernick a chance. But it's just fucking annoying that this article turns into an attack on Pete Carroll. I think it's totally unfair. Finishes saying, This surface-level wokeness that some white people have adopted and the convenience around their awakening to systemic racism and white supremacy since the happenings of George Floyd in 2020 far too often feel opportunistic. Well, what's the opportunity here? What is Pete Carroll gaining by doing this, this was supposed to take place in a closed meeting, right? It was leaked out afterwards. As it's proof that many of them were always blatantly aware of the privileges they've inherited and the involvement that they and the people around them played in it. They feel as if this moment has granted them a f- chance to finally speak out about it, but usually it's with hollow words. Words are words still. Are they all hollow? Fuck, man. If Pete Carroll really wanted to do... Th- things, change things for black coaches, or Colin Kaepernick, which was spelled wrong in this article, he would have done it already, but he hasn't, and that's not my opinion. It's a fact that Carol has proven by his inaction. Like, just fuck off. Some of these people, you're looking for something to get outraged about, and it's not always there. I would rather have someone point out ideas as to how maybe someone like Pete Carroll could have gone further here 
Instead of saying, like, Pete Carroll's full of shit. That's what this article basically is in a nutshell. And I don't think he's full of shit as someone who has spoken with him all the time. Sometimes, yes, when he's talking to us, the media, and we are asking him pointed questions, he is going to lie. That is for sure. But I don't think he lies when he talks about shit like this. I don't. I remember having a conversation with him where he said that more coaches need to stand up and say things like this. In the wake of everything that went, took place in 2020. And I remember I even asked him a follow-up about it. And he said, yeah, not enough coaches are doing it. And he thought that that little podcast that he did, the Flying Coach podcast that he did with Steve Kerr, he thought it would lead to more. And it didn't. But he wants other coaches to be like this. He shouldn't be the only one doing it. And yet he still is the only one doing it. Below Blackstar says, speaking as a brown person, I think Pete did a good thing. I think Pete did a good thing too, guys. There are things to hate Pete Carroll about. Being a little bit backwards as far as his approach to offense, maybe one. His possible hot takes on September 11th, another. This, come on, we're reaching. Appreciate everybody for tuning into this edition of the Galant Says Podcast, a little bit longer than we had planned. This is probably because my brain was not working until about, I don't know, like the last five minutes of this podcast, but I appreciate y'all tuning in anyway. If you haven't already, please follow on Twitch. This is how you get to interact with the show live in the moment. Subscribe on iTunes, that doesn't exist anymore. Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher. If you haven't already, rate, leave a review, like, subscription, whatever. You can catch clips of the podcast afterwards, youtube.com slash Gallant. Until tomorrow at about 3 o'clock or so, so long, farewell, and have yourselves a wonderful Wednesday.